This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Dear Father, as we come to you this morning, we pray that you will help us once again as we come to the book of Isaiah. That as we understand your word to its original people in Judah, that we will understand who you really are and how all of God's people need to live before you. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I was flying in a plane uh, not so long ago and there was really bad turbulence. Okay, the no, you know, the seatbelt sign had come on, no beverage being served, can't go to the toilet, plane bouncing up and down, uh, your hands gripping the, the side uh, armchair very uh, tightly, right? So I felt something that I hadn't felt in a long time. And that feeling was the feeling of fear, right? Now I want you to think for a moment on that word fear. Okay, when is the last time you've really felt fear? And what do you fear? What is it that you really fear? Okay, think about that for a second. I guess living in a country like Singapore, we don't really feel much fear. I mean, you feel the occasional fear when you take the plane, or maybe you fear failing your exams or doing bad in your career. But you really don't have that deep, deep abiding fear, right? Maybe you fear your boss, but then you change to another company, or you fear that fierce teacher, but then you change to another class. But as we come to the book of Isaiah, the people in Isaiah, God's people in Judah, they had real fear. Uh, the time of writing was around 700 BC, about 2,700 years ago, and the the people of God in Judah, they had real fear of death and being conquered and losing everything and maybe their wives and their daughters being raped. Right? So they were fearful of their immediate neighbors. Okay, So they had very powerful and rich neighbors. So we read about uh, Phoenicia and Tyre. Uh, we read about their enemies in Ammon, Moab and Edom, their immediate neighbors who they had always been historical enemies with. And they even feared their northern brothers, Israel. But beyond the horizon, beyond the immediate uh, neighborhood, were even greater dangers to be feared. So the great nation of Babylon, that had always been something that was always a threat further away. Oh, you got to click once, I think. Yeah, okay. But what turned out to be the greatest fear of all was the great nation of Assyria. Okay, so the next slide. So you can see Assyria was a growing power of this, at that time, right? So, you know, it grew so big that it actually uh, basically occupied all the other neighbors around Israel, uh, Judah. Now, fear was the problem and the mood of God's people in Isaiah's time. Right? It was the fear when you opened up the newspaper. It was the fear you felt when you got your Facebook feed. It was the spirit of the day. And the central question for God's people was, how do you solve this fear problem? How do you solve the fear problem? And God's people had two choices. Okay, two choices. They could either choose to trust in what the people around them, the neighboring peoples, all trusted, which was in diplomacy and alliances, or in political wisdom, 
or in armies and weapons and strategies of war, or they could trust in God, the Lord Yahweh. So the people feel the fear, and who did they end up trusting? Well, they didn't trust God or the Lord Yahweh. In the end, they trusted in diplomacy and alliances, in political wisdom, strategy, and war tactics. Sorry, they turned to Egypt. Okay, so, uh, eh, too fast, I think. Eh, oh no, the next one, okay, sorry, the next one, yep. So they trusted in Egypt, and as we saw last week in Isaiah chapter 30, they sent all these envoys, they sent money, they basically wanted to form an alliance with Egypt to you know, form a common alliance to protect against Assyria coming down. Okay, so you've got to click it once. Now, as we come to um, the passage we're looking at today, we can actually see that in chapter 13, all the way up to chapter 39, it forms one section, right? Uh, we've been slowly, slowly working through it, but it's really been dealing with that fear problem. And what God has been saying was, He's been saying, look, when you're faced with fear, then is it really something you should fear? And if you put your trust in something, is it something that you should be really putting your trust in? Because in chapter 13, the next slide, verse 1 of chapter 13, all the way up to chapter 36, basically, God lists down all the enemies of God's people, and one after another, He says, Look, why do you fear Babylon. Why do you fear the Philistines? Why do you fear the Moabites? Why do you fear the Phoenicians? Why do you fear anything on earth? Because I will bring all these things under judgment. And then he goes on to say, uh, the next slide, okay, uh, yep, so everything will be under God's judgment. Okay, then he goes on to say about their decision to trust in Egypt, right? So in chapter 18, 19, 20, and 30, he goes on to say, look, why do you trust? Why do you put your trust in Egypt? Because in the end, it will be useless and it will be harmful and it will bring you to shame. So as we come to Isaiah chapter 33, it forms part of this bigger section and it really asks the, the two key questions is, what should you trust? What should I trust? And what should I fear? Fear the right things. Trust in the right Things. Okay. So let me uh, look at chapter 33, verse 1, and let's look at it together. So it begins by saying, Woe to you, destroyer, you who have not been destroyed. Woe to you, betrayer, you who have not been betrayed. Now, the reason why we spend all that time looking at the background is because when we understand the whole background of chapter 13 all the way up to 33, well, then it becomes clear the destroyer is really Assyria. Right? Assyria was the great threat, the biggest fear of Judah during the day, and it was coming down from the north and had destroyed many nations. It destroyed the Babylonians, destroyed the Phoenicians, destroyed the Philistines, destroyed Israel, Samaria. So in uh, 2 Kings chapter 8, this is what it said, right? Um, next slide. It said, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent his message to the king of Assyria and Lachish. I've done wrong. Withdraw from me, and I will pay you 
whatever you demand of me. This king of Assyria exacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the treasuries of the royal palace. At this time, Hezekiah, king of Judah, stripped off the gold with which he had covered the doors and the doorposts of the temple of the Lord and gave it to the king of Assyria. So you would expect that Assyria had come and conquered and they said, we want money, right? We want you to give us money and then we will leave. So then Hezekiah said, okay, we will give you money. We give you 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. But the problem was that Assyria was the great betrayer. Right? Not only was she the great destroyer, but she was the great betrayer. Because even after the king Hezekiah gave the money over to Assyria, Assyria didn't leave. Right? She broke her treaty and she still threatened to destroy and conquer Jerusalem. That's why it says here, Woe to you, destroyer, woe to you, betrayer. Now, as we look here in verse 2 then, we see that uh, God's people, Judah, are out of options, right? Spend their money. They have tried all these different tactics. There's nothing left. And we see something in verse 2 which we haven't seen before in chapter 13 all the way up to here, right? Because finally, the people turn to God. They trust God. Lord, it says there in verse 2, be gracious to us. We long for you. Be our strength every morning, our salvation in time of distress. At the uproar of your army, the peoples flee. When you rise up, the nations scatter. Your plunder, O nations, is harvested by young locusts. Like a swarm of locusts, people pounce on it. The Lord is exalted, for He dwells on high. He will fill Zion with His justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. Look, their brave men cry aloud in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways are deserted. No travelers are on the roads. The treaty is broken. Its witnesses are despised. No one is respected. The land dries up and wastes away. The Lebanon, sorry, Lebanon is a shame and withers. Sharon is like the Arabah. And Basham and Carmel drop their leaves. So in verse 2 to verse 9, we see that God's people, after all this time, finally turn back to God because there is no hope. Uh, they put their trust in diplomacy and alliances, in political wisdom, war and strategy, and it has proved to be fruitless. There is nothing left to trust in. And that's why it says there that their brave men cry aloud in the street. Okay, the brave men cry aloud in the street. It's a bit like, you know, when you watch Avengers, what's the last one? Uh? Endgame, right? Or even the one before that, you know, who cries? Like, Thor cries, right? So, you know, Thor is like the strongest of all the, uh, the Avengers. And if he's crying, then you sort of realize, well, things are really bad, right? So in the same way, in Judah, the, the, the brave warriors, they are crying aloud in the street. So you know, well, there's no hope anymore in these warriors, right? Because they're, they're, they're blubbering and weeping. What can they do? 
And it says there that the envoys, the diplomats, well, they're, they're crying as well because there's no hope that they can see. And the treaty is broken, right? There's no way that they can actually solve anything through diplomacy. The land itself is a wasteland. There are no travelers, no one's on the highways and the byways. And even the fertile fields of the day are like, uh, the next slide, are like the, you know, like they're destroyed because of war. Okay, so finally, finally, the people call out to God and say, you are our strength and you are our salvation. And they turn back to God. But I want you to notice something very interesting in verse 6. It says there at the end of verse 6, the fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. Now, this is something that we can easily miss, right? Why is it suddenly it says the fear of the Lord is the key to the treasure of God's protection and security? I think it's because the context is they were fearing Assyria. But they realize now that actually the way to to overcome the fear of Assyria is is to acknowledge that the fear of God is something which is even more fearful than fearing Assyria. And the reality is that they should have feared God right from the beginning because it says there that God is the one who dwells in heaven, he is the one who is to be exalted. It says there in verse 5, right? He is exalted for he dwells on high. So right now, God's people says, okay, we're not going to put our trust anymore on man and humans and nations. We're going to put our trust on God. We should fear God because God, the one who is exalted and who you know, is, lives on high, he is the one who we should fear more than Assyria. And I think that's a very important lesson for us. Because when we take our eyes off God, then it's very easy for us to fear the things of this world, right? Fear men, fear nations, fear the things that are happening around us. But finally, when God's people turn to God, they say, well, the key to getting God to be on our side is to recognize that God is God, and God is greater than the nations, and we should fear God more than we fear Men. And I think that's got an important principle for us today, right? Because it's so easy for us to fear men and, and women and human things rather than to fear God. And as a result, we lose our trust in God. So, this pastor, Philip Jensen, I remember my uh, pastor from long ago, he once said how he spoke to this big rugby player. So he was a prop. You know the props are those the biggest people on the rugby field, right? And uh, he managed to read the Bible of this prop and the, the, the person uh, be, chose to accept Christ and become a Christian. But then this guy, after a few weeks, stopped coming to church. So Philip went to meet up with him and asked him, why did you stop coming to church? And he said, oh, you know, I was, I was very scared of what my, my mates would think of me now that I've become a Christian. And Philip said, can you imagine that this guy is like the biggest mountain of a human being and he's he's fearful about what his friends think because he wants to become a Christian. So he doesn't fear God, he fears the opinion of his friends even more. I remember uh, after graduation, I had a friend of mine who stayed in Australia and he was working there and he confessed to me 
that he used to go to these uh, strip bars with his colleagues. And I said, hey, you're a Christian, right? How can you do these things? And he said, well, you know, I didn't want to offend my boss and my colleagues. So in the end, he was more fearful of the opinion of his boss and his colleagues uh, than he was of God. But here in Isaiah chapter 33, God's people had something even more fearful than rugby mates or boss or colleagues, right? They were, they, they were scared of the great nation of Assyria, but yet they said we should fear God more, right? The fear of God is the key to his protection. Because we live today in a time of fear, right? We read the newspaper, we, we look at our internet, there's trade wars, you know, there's Brexit, uh, there's a chance of terrorism all over the world, America might go to war with Iran. There's lots of things to be fearful about. But are those really things that we should fear compared to our fear of God? Because that's a lesson for today, right? The next slide. Oh, okay, I haven't got that yet. Okay. Okay, I need to change the order of the slides. Okay, don't worry. Because the whole point is that God is the one that we must fear, not the things of this world. So in Luke chapter 12, uh, Jesus says the same things to his disciples. Right? I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after killing the body has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So the question that we are faced with just as the Syrians, sorry, the people of Judah at that point uh, when they face the Assyrians is, uh, the next point, slide, oh, did I, what happened to the one about fear? Oh, okay, don't worry, I'll just say it. So the point I think we really have to ask ourselves is, you know, what do we really fear? Because as we look at this passage right at the very beginning, the secret of trusting God must be to fear Him above all things. Because how can you trust God if you fear other things, right? You will turn to trust other things. The fear of God actually is the key to trusting God. Now the passage then goes on in verse 10. Right, verse 10 and 16 it says, now I will arise. So God hears the call of his people. Right? Finally the people call on God and God says, "Okay, now will I arise, says the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I be lifted up. Okay, then he says to Assyria, you, Assyria, conceive shaft. You, Assyria, give birth to straw. Your breath is the fire that consumes you. The peoples will be burned to ashes like cut thorn bushes, they will be set ablaze. You who are far away, hear what I've done. You who are near, acknowledge my power. The sinners in Zion are terrified and trembling grips the godless. Who of us can, can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? Those who walk righteously and speak what is right, those who reject gain, from extortion, and keep their hands from accepting bribes, who stop their ears with plots of murder, and shut their eyes against contemplating evil. They are the ones who will dwell on the heights, whose refuge will be the mountain fortress. Their bread will be supplied, and water will not fail them. 
So here we see that God has in mind a very specific uh, historical situation, right? So God says, look, now at this time, I will respond. I will come up, I will rise, I will be exalted, and I will destroy this concrete force that is coming against Judah. And that's exactly what happens and is recorded for us in 2 Kings chapter 19, uh, which is up here on the slide, 2 Kings chapter 19. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death a hundred and 85,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, they were, they were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while worshipping the temple of his god, Nisroch, his sons, Adramelech and Shariza, cut him down with the sword and they escaped to the land of the Ararat. And Azarad Hadon, his son, succeeded him as king. So here, God hears the call of his people, and he acts. Right? He destroys the Syrian army, destroys their king. You would think that God's people would be jumping for joy. right? Wow, this is a great celebration. But instead of jumping for joy and happiness, there's the complete opposite. They are trembling, says they are gripped. With fear. But I want you to know what it says there in verse 14. The sinners in Zion, the sinners in Jerusalem itself, right? So these are God's people. The sinners of God's people are terrified and trembling grips the godless. Now, why are they trembling with terror and fear? Because they realize what God is. That God is consuming fire. That God is everlasting burning. Now, if you actually ponder and reflect for a moment, right? we just sort of like calm ourselves down. What do you think of when you think of God? And what is the picture in your mind when you think of God? Do you ever think of God as a consuming fire? Right, everlasting burning. Uh, that's not something that immediately pops into my mind when I think of God, right? But, but that's one aspect of God's character, right? He is everlasting fire, everlasting eternal burning. If you think of God's character in that way, then you realize why sinners and godless will tremble before Him, right? It's like coming face to face with a lion, right? You know, it's like without the glass enclosure, right? If you come face to face with a lion, then the immediate thing would be for you to feel terror and fear, right? It's not like you sort of want to pet the lion or something. But if the character of God is consuming fire and everlasting burning, not like, you know, you turn on your electrical, your, your cooking hob once in a while, right? It's like he's, he's on fire all the time, right? And he's on fire everlasting, then how can a sinner come into his presence? Right? You should be terrified of coming into his presence because he'll burn you up, right? You'll be like burnt up. So I heard a preacher once uh, tell me about how a young person once told him that he met God that morning. Right? So you know, so the, the pastor asked this guy, said, Oh, you know, what was God like? He said, Oh, he was just like a normal guy, you know, he's sitting at the foot of my bed and we're having a conversation. And then the pastor said, Well, 
you, you didn't meet God, whoever you met, right? Because if you met God, you'd be terrified of God. Because when we come into the presence of God and we see what He's really like, He is consuming fire. And if you're a sinner, you should be terrified before Him. So the question is, how do we then come into this relationship with this everlasting, burning, consuming fire God? Well, it says there in verse 15, those who walk righteously and speak what is right, who reject gain from extortion and keep their hands from accepting bribes, who stop their ears against plots of murder and shut their eyes against contemplating evil, well, these are the ones who will dwell on the heights. These are the ones who will have refuge in the mountain fortress. Now here we think, I think what we see here is not uh, salvation by works, but repentance. Right? You're a sinner? Don't be a sinner anymore, right? You must walk righteously. So walking is always a, 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 like a visual picture of living. Live righteously. Walk on the righteous paths. Your speaking must be changed. Speak what is right. Your attitude to money must change. Reject extortion, bribes, or unjust gain. Your relationship with others must change. You no longer plot evil against other people. So have we understood this message that God gives? Do we, do we see God as a consuming fire? If we see God as a consuming fire, then we need to repent. Have we changed in the way that we live? Have we changed in the way that we speak? Have we changed in the way that we regard money? Have we changed in the way of how we have relationships with other people? Do we plot evil against other people? Because if you come face to face with such a God, you realize that He demands repentance. So I remember uh, coming across this quote uh, in one of the books I've been reading recently, in the C.S. Lewis book. And there's this guy that C.S. Lewis admires a lot. And he's, his name is George MacDonald. And he says, there is no, no, there is no escape. There is no little heaven with a little hell in it. No plan to retain this or that of the devil in our hearts or our pockets. Out Satan must go every hair and feather. What he's saying is that we, we as Christians have a capacity to want to keep a little bit of Satan, right? We want to keep a little bit of evil, a little bit of sin. But if God is this consuming fire, if God is this eternal burning, then our repentance before Him must be radical and universal and complete. We cannot be keeping these little sins in our life because God's character demands that we repent totally. And that's why I was reading somewhere that that's why Christianity and churches today are so weak and are so ungodly because they fail to see that God is a consuming fire. Right, if you think about it, why do you see scandals in like uh, you know various denominations or various churches? Is, isn't it because they don't see God as a consuming fire? They don't understand the radical repentance that God is calling us to live in. So the passage then goes on, and basically uh, it's saying that if we want to have a the right attitude of trusting God, 
then we need to fear God. And if we fear God, then we need to repent in the way that we turn back to God. Now in verse 20 uh, to 24, right, we now see that the picture moves from what I feel is the immediate historical situation to something which is pointing more to the future. So the language becomes very poetic. There's a lot of imagery being used. Look on Zion, the city of our festivals. Your eyes will see Jerusalem. A peaceful abode, a tent that will not be moved. Its stakes will never be pulled up, nor any of its ropes broken. There the Lord will be our mighty one. It will be a place of it will be like a place of broad rivers and streams. No galley with oars will ride them. No mighty ship will sail them. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our giver. The Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. Your rigging hangs loose. The mast is not held secure. The sail is not spread. Then an abundance of spoils will be divided. And even the lame will carry off plunder. No one living in Zion will say, I am ill. And the sins of those who dwell there will be forgiven. Now, the reason why I say that uh, Isaiah 33, verse 20 to 24, seems to be moving from the specific situation of 700 BC to something greater, something more in the future, is because the image here is not of the material. It's very much looking beyond the material. So the first picture that's given is that Jerusalem will never be moved, right? So it's very ironic because, you know, tents are meant to be packed and unpacked and moved around, right? I mean, like, you never put up a tent permanently, right? You just put the tent up when you need it, then you, you pack it up, and then you unpack it again. But here it says that God's city, Zion, is permanent. The ten pegs will never be moved, the stakes will never be pulled up, the ropes will never be broken. This will be like a permanent city. And Zion, God's city, will be a place with many streams and waters. It will be a place with broad rivers and streams, which is very unusual because, uh, as we all know, Jerusalem is in the desert, right? So we've got a lot of streams and, and, and water, right? But it will be like a place where there will be lots of streams and water there. It will be a place where people won't go thirsty, I suppose. It will be a place of provision and plenty. But there's a strange picture, right, where it says, No galley with oars will ride them. No mighty ship will sail them. It's almost a picture in which, uh, in the past, right, uh, like the Vikings, they come upstream using the river. Right? But here it's saying, look, even though this permanent city is a place of great rivers, but yet invaders and people attackers will never come to attack it. And it goes on to say that uh, this city is ruled by God, who is our judge and our lawkeeper, lawgiver, sorry, and our king. Now, if you look at these four, three verses. They are very deep and profound, right? Because if God is the judge, and God is the lawgiver, and God is the king, 
then you expect that he will be the one who brings judgment. Right? I mean, obviously that's the logical connection, right? Judge, lawgiver, king. The next line should be, he will judge his people. But he doesn't say that, right? Because he says he will save his people. And now the judge and the lawkeeper, lawgiver and the king, he is like the consuming fire. That, that image ties together, right? The, the judge, the king, the lawgiver, he is the consuming fire who consumes the sinner. But here, this consuming fire, judge, lawgiver, king, God, saves his people, even though he is the consuming fire judge. Now, how does that happen? It happens because he forgives sin, right? He forgives people's sin. That's how he saves his people, because he saves them, because he takes away their sin by forgiveness. Then there is nothing for the fire to consume. There's nothing for the judge to judge. There's no law that's broken. The irony is actually, the situation of God's people is a bad situation. Right, so there's an image here of a ship, of rigging which is loose, a mask which is not secure, a sail which is not spread. So obviously we're not sailors. We kind of like, this is all like, don't know what God is talking about, right? But, but think of it this way. So imagine a ship. Okay, so nowadays who are sailing boats? Only the super rich, which none of us are, right? So if you have a sailing ship, and the mast is, you know, fallen down. The sail is torn. Uh, the rigging, you know, all the ropes is like all knotted up and everything. Then you say, well, this ship is in a bad condition. But that's the description that God says is his people. That's exactly what he says. Look what it says there in verse 23, right? Your rigging hangs loose. The mask is not held secure. The sail is not spread. And what he's saying through the use of this image is, God's people, they are not in good condition. Even though they're trying to repent, even though they're trying their best to repent, they are still sinful. Right? It's like, like a ship which is in a bad shape. So God is the one who comes in and he needs to forgive them because without the forgiveness, they can't dwell with the one who is the judge, the lawgiver and the king, the consuming fire. Now for us today, as we read this passage, we know that God's promise of forgiveness comes true because in Jesus Christ on the cross, we know that we have received forgiveness. Alright, so in Ephesians chapter 1, which is the passage I think Richmond was trying to read for us earlier, or, or we're supposed to read with him together, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace which He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And Acts chapter 13 says, But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see to de- decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that Jesus, through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So for those of you who have gone through the baptism class or the membership class, uh, you would have done the material back to basics. And I always remember there's this very powerful illustration in the book, The Back to Basics, where it says, you know, in America, they have wildfires, right? Or in Australia, they have bushfires. And in the early days, when people used to travel through these forests, 
uh, the fire would start really quickly and you couldn't outrun these fires because these fires move really quickly. So, how did they save themselves? Well, what they would do is, they would kind of like uh, clear an area and they would burn that area and then they would move themselves into the area and then the fire would, you know, go past them. And the lesson would be, is that when you burn that area, you, the, the fire cannot burn again. Right? You know, you, it makes sense, right? You burn the area, the fire comes, there's nothing to burn. And I think the illustration in the Back to Basics book is really powerful. It says, you know, that's the same thing with God's consuming fire of His wrath. The place where God's consuming fire of wrath has already burned is at the cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross of Jesus Christ, His consuming fire of wrath has already burned on Jesus for our sins. So if you want to find safety before God's consuming fire, then you need to find it at the cross. Because at the cross, Jesus has already taken God's consuming fire for us. So I like this quote uh, that I read from C.S. Lewis, but it's also from George MacDonald apparently. He says, uh, You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. Okay, so you have to think about that a little bit, alright? Someone is basically saying is that we have a soul. We are the soul, right? And we have a body. So one day the body goes away, but the soul is always here and we will meet God. All of us here have a soul and we will meet God, the consuming fire. The question is, when we meet God that one day, how will it go on that day? How will it be that day when you meet God, the consuming fire, the everlasting burning? Will you be safe from the consuming fire of God's judgment? Or will you be in danger of God's everlasting burning? Well, as we've learned from today's passage, as God spoke to the people of Judah, the right choice is to fear the right things and to trust the right things. Right? The right choice must be to trust God, fear God, repent, but also come to Him for the forgiveness of your sins. Because that's the only way that you can meet a God who is a consuming fire and everlasting burning. A God who is a judge, a God who is a lawgiver, a God who is a king. So I hope that as we have come to Isaiah chapter 3 today, you see that God doesn't just speak to the people 2,700 years ago, but He's also speaking to us now, right? Because God's character is the same. Right? God is still the everlasting fire. He is still the consuming fire. He is still the judge. He is still the lawgiver. He is still the king. And we will all one day have to stand before Him. So on that day, will you be safe before Him? Can you meet Him without being burned? Well, in order to do so, you have to fear Him, trust in Jesus, repent, and turn to Him for forgiveness. Okay, Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we thank you for your word in the book of Isaiah chapter 33. We see that your people in Judah all those years ago faced a great fear. 
the fear of their great Assyrian nation coming down and threatening to destroy them. They put their trust in the wrong things. They put their trust in Egypt. They put their trust in diplomacy. They put their trust in money to buy Assyria off. But instead, they should have put their trust in the right things. They should have put their trust in you. For in the end, you did save them at that moment in time. They trusted you because they learned to fear you more than to fear the things of this world. The things of men and women. The things of nations. Dear Father, help us to fear you above all things. Help us as well to know that we need to repent before you, for you are a consuming fire, an everlasting burning. And to see that even though you are the judge, the lawgiver, and the king, and that you will make Zion a permanent heavenly abode, that we need to realize that we cannot save ourselves, but we need forgiveness. And that forgiveness can only be found in Jesus Christ and the cross. So we pray that we will turn in faith to Jesus as well, so that we will be forgiven for our sins. And that we can come before you confident, knowing that we will not be consumed by your fearful wrath. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, Visit us online at busypc.sg.